The sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. As we continue in the letter to the Hebrews, working our way as is our custom, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through a whole book of the Bible. This morning, we are in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 11. And there we read, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As we've noted, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith, as many describe it. In this chapter of Hebrews uh, are listed many of those in the Old Covenant, those saints that we are so familiar with from the scriptures, uh, who trusted in God's promise of eternal salvation. We considered thus far Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. And there are so many others throughout the Old Covenant who were looking forward and trusting in God's promise of salvation, salvation through a Savior through a sent one. And all of these people in the Old Covenant, they died, but they died believing in the promise, though they didn't see that promise fully come to pass in their lives. They died in faith. And something in particular that characterized all of their lives is that they lived with the certainty of future glory. They didn't live just for this life. They lived knowing that there was something greater laid up in store for them, for all of God's people. And it was by faith that they sought that heavenly home, the one that God has prepared for all of his people. And so as we consider this text this morning, I want us to see first that the world in its current condition, loved ones, is not our home. So we look again at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. As we look at this verse, the word there of stranger What it describes is it describes an outsider, uh, someone who doesn't fit in, who doesn't belong. As Christians, we are described by Scripture as strangers to this world. And we also see in verse 13 that word exile. It's very similar to uh, the word stranger. The word exile describes someone who is staying for a while in a strange or a foreign place. It describes someone who sometimes is referred to as a sojourner or traveler. This term was 
often uh, used to describe a person who uh, stray, uh, stayed temporarily at a hotel or at a lodging place on the way to his or her uh, destination. This imagery, if we think about it, is uh, imagery that is present throughout that very well-known book, Pilgrim's Progress, by uh, John Bunyan. And when we think about that book, it's so helpful to consider uh, as we think about it because it, it really illustrates what it means that we are strangers and exiles on earth as Christians. In that story that many of us are familiar with, a Christian, he leaves the city of destruction and he begins his journey toward the celestial city, that celestial city known as Mount Zion. And along his journey... Christian makes several stops. He meets many different people. Some of the people he meets help him. Some of the people that he meets actively try to hinder him in his pilgrimage. But all along the way, as we read the story, we feel Christian's unease in the city of destruction. And we feel his longing to be in the celestial city. See, after his conversion, he became a stranger and an exile in the city of of destruction. And he became more and more aware of the fact that his true home was in that celestial city that he was marching toward. So this language of strangers and exiles is also used, we see, in Scripture, oftentimes to uh, describe the Jews that were taken out of Israel and to Babylon and Assyria when those nations invaded Israel. The Jews, as we read in the Old Testament, were living in exile away from their home. They were strangers in foreign lands. We know a great example of this is Daniel. Children, you all know Daniel's story very well, don't you? Daniel was one of the young Israelites who was forcefully taken to Babylon to be in service to the king of Babylon. And Daniel, we know that though he was surrounded by uh, sinful temptations in that foreign place, Daniel sought to honor God even when his life was in danger at times. He lived as a stranger and an exile in Babylon. And Ezra is also an excellent example of this. You read that Ezra, while he lived in Babylon, uh, he was a Jew who longed to return home. And when he was finally given the chance, he left the riches and the sinful temptations of Babylon in order to return to Jerusalem, to his home. Both of these men, these godly people, were uneasy in these foreign places and were longing uh, for, for home. But we know that both of them were not just longing to return to that earthly place called Israel, but both of them were looking forward to uh, that greater Jerusalem that is to come. The writer of Hebrews, you see, uses this language to describe Christ's church in the world, that in this world, we as Christians, loved ones, should consider ourselves exiles. We are living in this place, but we are living longing for our true home, that this world is not our true 
home, that we are strangers. We are exiles here. You know, even as we consider what that means, it's important for us to understand, loved ones, that when we say this world is not our home, uh, this world doesn't mean uh, this planet, but it means this world in its present sinful state. It's very important for us to, to understand what Scripture is referring to here, that when we say that this world is not our home, we're not just speaking about this planet, right? But we are speaking about this world in its present sinful state. In his book, Setting Our Sights on Heaven, Paul Wolf, and it's a wonderful book. It's published by Banner of Truth. Highly recommend it. Paul Wolf really helps us clarify what we mean when we say this world is not our home. He says, you know, in a sense, this planet, in a sense, is our home. Uh, This is our Father's world. Uh, God made this planet to be the habitation of the human race, and the ultimate aim of God's redeeming work is not our removal, but his glorious renewal of this earth and of creation. And so, Paul, says, Paul Wolf says, you know, when we say this world is not our home, what we're saying specifically is it's not our home in the state that we find it now, in the condition in which it presently is. We mean it's not our home in the way we see this present evil age. What we have in view when we speak about this world not our home is the planet as it is fallen, humanity as it is currently fallen in sin and misery. As Christians, we live in this fallen environment, but we don't belong to this present state. As Christians, we have been redeemed by Christ. We have been made alive by His Spirit. We are a new creation. We have been born again. We, the Bible says we have the mind of Christ And this is why we are strangers and exiles here. We are citizens of heaven, of a different kingdom. So as Christians, we know that we are very different from this world, don't we? We are those who don't live in open rebellion against God, as do the unregenerate, as do non-Christians. We are not like those who live in hopelessness and an alienation from God. And so here in this world, on this earth, as we find it now, we feel out of step. It's like a square peg in a round hole. You ever feel that way sometimes? We feel out of place because we believe differently. We live differently. We are aliens and strangers living in a foreign land like Daniel and Ezra. Jesus, Lord Jesus in his high priestly prayer for his church, for you and for me. This is who he was praying for in John chapter 17. It says it this way. He says, Father, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, 
just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So as we consider what the Lord Jesus says, and the writer, the Hebrews, is, is, is saying, the question then is, if this world, as it presently is, is not our home, then where is our home? Are we destined for an eternity of homelessness? You see, in our second point, that the new creation, loved ones, is our home. We read in Hebrews 11, verses 14 through 16. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Loved ones, what we desire is this better country, as we see here, the heavenly one, the one that God has prepared for us. It is the celestial city, the one that is described in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And listen to the way the Apostle John describes this heavenly city. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, this is the city that God has prepared for us, this new heaven and the renewed earth. This is the city that the old covenant saints were also looking forward to. That even Abraham, Abraham, who you remember we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10, even Abraham is said to have been looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Even Abraham knew that that earthly promised land that was to be his and his descendants', that even that was only a sign and a seal, a promise of something that was greater. It was heavenly, the better country. Loved ones, why is it a better country? As we read here in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a better country because it is completely free of sin and its effects. It is the new creation. Consider again Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. Listen how John describes this better country. He says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, sadness, right? Nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Death, pain, all the things that belong to this age, to this world in its present state, all those things will have passed away have been wiped away because of the renewed heavens and the new heavens and the renewed earth. 
And even as we read that in Revelation 21, verse 4, those things that John says will not be present there in, in the new creation, you know, those are all the result of the fall into sin, death and pain. Those are the things that we read about in Genesis chapter 3 that resulted from the curse that came upon God's good creation. But loved ones, the better country, the new country, the new Jerusalem will be free of all of these things, and we will inherit this country by grace through faith in Christ. And so we must live this life in light of that world that is to come. We must not be like that first generation of Israel, that first generation of Israel who, you know, as they were strangers and exiles, leaving Egypt, going toward the promised land, they were marching through the wilderness. We see how often they were eager to return to Egypt. How often they said, how great would it be for us to return to Egypt, to return to slavery, to return to death, to return to decay. We must not be like that first generation of Israel. We are instead, loved ones, encouraged and exhorted by the writer to the Hebrews to live like Abraham, who was a stranger and an exile, and who lived in pilgrimage to the promised land. Abraham, who didn't long to return to Ur of the Chaldeans, but who knew that God had prepared a place for him. And it was there in that place that Abraham sought to dwell. We are to live, loved ones, in the assurance that we are pilgrims to this better country, and that by the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, we will surely reach that glorious destination. So what then should we do in the meantime? This is point three. What should we do in the meantime? Because we, as Christians, live in this moment between Christ's first advent and we await his second advent. We live in joyful confidence because we know uh, the end of the story. We know how it will all unfold, right? We are those who have seen the movie in a sense. We've read the whole book. We know the end. Um, We know how it will all culminate in the renewal of all things. And so the question then is, what should we do in this present moment in the meantime? Dr. Michael Horton, in his book, Core Christianity, he provides a great summary of how the church has answered this question over the centuries. Dr. Horton is the main speaker at our upcoming youth camp, and his book, Core Christianity, is actually what we'll, he'll be teaching on uh, throughout the week. Uh, but he says in the book that as we read the Bible, uh, we discover that we are, as Christians, living at this certain point of, in history, right? Living between Christ's first advent and his second advent. We live in this present evil age awaiting the age to come. Christ's kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully consummated. Christ came the first time in humility and self-sacrifice to bring salvation. But we know that the second time he is coming in power and glory. And so what then do we do in this present moment? Dr. Horton knows that historically there have been three answers to this question, that the church historically has answered this question in three ways. 
The first answer is triumphalism. That as, as Christians, we are to transform the world into the kingdom of Christ. That we are to use all of our wisdom, all of our resources and efforts to work to make this world a better place, to work to make this world fit for uh, Christ's return. Loved ones, the problem with this view is that it downplays the effect of sin upon uh, creation. What it does is it places too much emphasis on what you and I need to do, on what you and I need to accomplish. And it de-emphasizes what Christ alone can do in making all things new in that last day. It puts too much emphasis upon us and a lot less emphasis upon what Christ himself will accomplish in that last day. That's the first answer, triumphalism. Second answer is that of a complete, uh, what we would say complete, completely different from triumphalism, and that is one of defeatism. The defeatist says that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. So we just need to hang on, uh, grab who we can save, and wait till the end. You know, all is bleak and gloomy. So just hold on as best you can. My loved ones, some of you have already chuckled, right? You know the problem with this view. The problem with this view is that it downplays what Christ has accomplished in his victory over Satan, sin, and death. See, we confess every Sunday that we have a Savior, a risen and ascended Savior who is reigning over all things. And that last day, the day of his return, that day will merely reveal what is already true, that he is the Savior of all, uh, his people, that he is the King. And so we mustn't be defeatist, but we must live with confidence and joy, even in this present evil age. And this then gives us a really good perspective on the third answer, which is neither one of uh, triumphalism nor defeatism, but is one of witness, the answer of, of witness. And this third answer, it puts us in an active role, not of transforming culture, but as of living as witnesses to our risen and our ascended Lord. You and I, loved ones, as those who have been saved by grace through faith alone, through Christ alone, we are witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are to live willing to suffer for that witness if that's what God has ordained for us. And we are to live loving and serving our neighbors in our very ordinary, oftentimes, very worldly callings. See, this answer of witness, it recognizes the tension that we live in between the already and the not yet. In other words, it recognizes the fact that Christ's kingdom is already inaugurated in his victory over Satan, sin, and death. It's present. But what we are doing, loved ones, is we are patiently waiting for that full and final renewal of all things at the end of this age. And so in the meantime, we are called neither to try to transform society ourselves nor to run from our callings and responsibilities as God's people, but we are to do what the Apostle Paul taught us 
and teaches us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, that we are to work with our hands so that our daily lives may win the respect of outsiders and so that we will not be dependent on anybody. Work with our hands so that our daily lives may win the respect of outsiders. Being that witness for Christ in any sphere that God has placed us in, be it in the home, in the workplace, um, be it out in public, in the public square, in politics, wherever Christ has placed us, wherever God has placed us to be witnesses to Christ in those arenas, by our life, by our words, uh, even by the way that we live differently as strangers and exiles. So uh, Dr. Horton says, We are waiting for that day when Christ returns and makes the kingdoms of this age the kingdom of Christ. Until then, we are called neither to change the world nor abandon it, but to love and serve our neighbors to the best of our ability. Sometimes Christians can make a significant and measurable impact on the world around them. But our focus should not be on these achievements. It should be on Christ in faith, and on our neighbor in love. We do, good, we do good works, not for our status, but for the glory of God and the good of others. This is, loved ones, where we see the goodness of our God. Because, you know, what he does is he gives us little tastes or samplings of heaven, of that new creation that we await, even in this present evil age, even in the midst of living amongst sorrows and the difficulties of this life, God, by his goodness, has granted the fact that we don't have to wait to begin experiencing the joys of heaven. We have these foretastes of the new creation. And what are these foretastes? What are these samplings? And one of them is the fact that we are now citizens of heaven, by our new birth. Our disposition, our desires, our priorities, our allegiances, they are all heavenly. Are they not, loved ones? Again, we do not live as those who do not know Christ. We have experienced the new creation and our new birth. And this new birth, this regeneration that we have received by grace is a foretaste of the newness that God will bring about in the last day to all of his creation. There's another foretaste, and that is in the worship that we experience every Lord's Day here at Grace. And when we gather for worship, we are experiencing heavenly life even now. That the Christian Sabbath, that one day in seven that God has blessed us with, is a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath that we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. That eternal Sabbath when we will finally experience eternal rest from the pains of sin and of death. And even when we fellowship together, even this is a foretaste of the glory that is to come. When we fellowship together as brothers and sisters, we are experiencing heavenly life now. Have you ever, I want to ask you, have you ever been together with Christian friends for a celebration uh, or a feast or uh, 
been at a prayer meeting or a Bible study, and in that context, you felt so joyful, so at peace, so happy and so safe, that you thought, you know, I could do this forever. That is the kingdom of God breaking into the kingdom of this age. And loved ones, even this table, this table that is before us is a foretaste of heaven. It is a heavenly feast. It's a small piece of bread that we hold. It's a small cup. But in eating and in drinking, what we are doing is we are being lifted up to heaven by the Holy Spirit to commune with our Savior who is now reigning in heaven and who we believe by faith he will come to redeem us in the last day. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rich truth of your word. It so clearly and richly reveals Christ to us. Cause us, we pray, to seek our refuge in him and in him alone. And bless us now, we pray, as we partake of this spiritual feast before us. In Jesus' name.